Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, speaker, and educator who loves to geek out with people from a whole variety of backgrounds about their perspectives on God, the Bible, theology, and any other tangentially related subject. Pour yourself a drink, grab some food, join me at this virtual podcast table for the second half of our conversation with Dr. Norman Wurzba, who is the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Christian Theology at Duke University. Before we get into our conversation, just a reminder, my new book called Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels is available for pre-order at christianbook.com. So if you're looking for a new book to read with your small group, or if you just want an introduction to the complex real world that Jesus lived in and how to use that information to help you understand the Gospels, this is the perfect book for you. As for this conversation, you may remember from last week that we talked about the benefits for theology students to get their hands dirty and participate in the slow process of growing food. But this begs the question, what about those who have hurtful memories wrapped up with land? People or ancestors whose labors were exploited for the benefit of others? Is there a way to reconnect to the land as a form of resisting exploitation? Have you ever had students in class who are African-Americans maybe and have a history of sharecropping in their past and therefore working the land holds painful memories of being exploited? And so how does engaging in your class and in theology how does their experience and their memory kind yeah. of join in with the conversations in class? It's a hugely important conversation because yeah. it's not just more recently in, in the American context, but you can't make sense of the history of agriculture without forced labor and slavery, right? It's there from the beginning. I mean, it's just the reality that Drawing your livelihood from the land, growing food, finding energy, securing energy, all of these enterprises require physical labor. And people don't like physical labor. I've done it for years. And I can tell you, if I'm doing it here in North Carolina when it's 95 degrees, I am not happy. (laughs) And so this is the experience of people all around the world where you, you realize that to do the things you want to do or need to do to eat, you're going to have to work. And people don't want to do this. And so they force other people to do it. And the history of that, of course, is pretty awful. But if you bring it up to, say, the American context, the history gets you know doubly awful because what we know, of course, is how slavery develops in this country as a racialized phenomenon to make sure that the land will be productive and increase the profits of the slave owners. And the the kind of logic that is prepared to violate African-American bodies is the exact same logic that also violated the land upon which these bodies operated. And so the history of agriculture in America is a history that is just saturated with abuse. It's not the whole story, right? There are other farmers who didn't practice that way, but we certainly know that what made the American economy you know, a, a vital player in the global economy, first in the areas of sugar plantations, but then moving into cotton and then beyond, is that it all depended upon slavery and a model for extracting 
the energy of people and the possibilities, the fertility of the land. And both were systematically degraded. So that's just part of the American history. But then after slavery, right, after emancipation, you know, you get the era of Reconstruction in which so many African-American former slaves were promised to have land. That was quickly rescinded. And instead, you have this horrible sharecropping system that comes into being, which, again, is violating in so many different ways. And then after the sort of sharecropping era, it continues when you've got a USDA and lending agencies and government agencies that find ways, systematic ways, to steal the land from African-Americans who did have land that they owned and farmed. And so more recently, we've seen that these African-American farmers, not many of them left, not a very large land base that they can claim as their own, actually sued the USDA and they won. And so the USDA has had to figure out how are they going to do some kind of reparations. But that's just a first step because the the stealing of land from African-Americans is part of the history that does not get talked about enough and needs to. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so when you have students who are African-Americans, they, they, they learn about this history and they, they maybe have the memory of family members who were sharecroppers or slaves. It's a really hard thing. And so one of the things I try to do in a context like that is introduce them to African-American farmers who also have struggled with this history, but have understood that it's important for African-Americans to reconnect with the land, right? Bell Hooks does this, for instance, in her book, Belonging. And that's a really important text because she says, insofar as African-Americans can engage the land, they're not engaging a system of exploitation because the land does not discriminate against them in the way that industrial factories in cities did, right? Owned by white men who continue to oppress them now in an urban context. And so, you know, Bell Hooks has advocated strongly for this reconnection with the land to happen because the souls of American, African-American people are at stake. Even going back to what you said moments before, for students who are able to spend more time with the land and they see the gifting aspect of working the land. Mm -hmm. And even people who have histories of being taken advantage of by systems, there's something about being connected to the land where the land will give back. It becomes a, a more beautiful, like when they're not under the umbrella of an oppressive system, the actual human land connection can be quite uh, beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, Alice Walker writes about this also in Inheriting Our Mother's Gardens, where she talks about, I think it was her grandmother who had the most beautiful garden in Georgia that people would come to from all over to see. And, And what's amazing is to see this person who has been so abused by a history, but then also by their own culture. And yet in the midst of that kind of brutality are committed to growing a beautiful piece of land and and in this beauty, finding their souls alive and how that can then be an inspiration to other people that the, the systems of oppression, which clearly need to be addressed and overturned, do not kill the spirit in people to create beauty. Do you also remember last week's conversation when we talked about biting into a piece of food and how that is like biting into the world? 
Food connects humans, not just to the ground, but to plants and to the history of food production. Following that thought, I asked Dr. Wurzba if his astute attention to the multifaceted layers of growing, cooking, and consuming food contributes to his ideas of the sacramental aspects of eating. I think so. I think so. Because when you're in a garden, and I know that I have to be careful here because I have plenty of friends who will talk about their farming practices and they will not invoke the word God ever. And and I respect that. But I think there's also the potential, at least, for people when they're growing food to realize that at the end of the chain, if you want to put it with that metaphor, there is this unknowability. There is this sense that as much as we try to do to control the production of food, we can't control it. We can't even make it happen because life is fundamentally a gift. And it's a vulnerable gift. It's a fragile gift. And so the posture that we might bring to a garden, even though it will have all these dimensions of of control and manipulation, maybe the posture at the very end of the day has to be the, the posture of one who receives a gift that comes from beyond their control, from even beyond their comprehension. And that that sort of acknowledgement of what we might call the mysterious character of life, or some people will call it the sacred character of life, I think that possibility emerges. And for Christians, we've got multiple ways to talk about this because we have scriptural texts that talk about how we address this mystery, how this mystery becomes apparent to us in the form of of God, but then also in, in the embodied form of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Those become terms that Christians develop to talk about how the world's being at all is the reflection of a divine intention that says it's good for creatures to be, it's good for places to be, and that what is most important for people is to learn to come into postures that care for this created world, that celebrate this created world, that share this created world, that learn to heal where the damage is happening, feed where it's hungry, right? These are the different dimensions that get developed in Scripture as ways to affirm the goodness, the rightness, the beauty of created places and creatures. And that becomes an animating sort of uh, vision for what we could then call a sacramental picture of eating. When I think of sacraments and I think of eating in the Bible, sometimes the extremes come up. There is feasting, of which... The Bible actually instructs us to feast and feast heartily like right. for days on end. Yeah. Those are good days, aren't they? <laughs> they are. I love them. It's just, it's so beautiful. I love this idea that God wants us to sit at his table and just feast. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. But there's also a fasting element. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about these, how do feasting and how do fasting play into this sacramental yeah, part? I, I think it's instructive that in in scripture, the first sort of sin, if you want to call it that, that emerges is an eating sin, right? Adam and Eve are presented with this beautiful garden with lots of beautiful plants and, and plants that are good for food. And, and God says, you know, you can eat all that stuff, but don't eat this one. And, and of course, when told not to do something that that's of course what people want to do and this story has been talked about in in multiple multiple ways and i don't want to to go rehearse many of them but i think what's instructive is that 
On the one hand, Adam and Eve are presented with a beautiful world that is clearly meant to be enjoyed. But at the same time, they're told that your enjoyment has to have limits. Because if you don't have limits, you're going to presume to take the world by force and you'll no longer receive it as a gift. And so Mm. feasting becomes one of the primary ways in which we learn to celebrate the goodness of God, right? And so feasting, and again, there's ways to feast that are appropriate and ways to feast that are not, right? Feasting at its best gives glory to God as the source of all these gifts, but then also honors the gifts themselves by working with them, by preparing them in ways that highlight their special qualities or characteristics. And so the celebration is never simply about the host. In fact, one of the ways that a feast has gone off the rails, if it becomes all about the host, right? The host is supposed to be hosting a feast by show lighting the goodness of God, by foregrounding the goodness of the gifts Mm -hmm. that are being Mm -hmm. shared with all the people that have come to the feast, right? So that's sort of the feasting side. And I think the fasting side is also hugely important because when you fast, you're being very intentional about restraining your desire to just consume at will, to consume unendingly. And when we try to do that, when we presume upon the world, by thinking that it should all exist for us to enjoy whenever we want it, we're going to do a lot of damage. We're going to do damage to places. We're going to do damage to fellow creatures. And we're also going to do damage to the people that we're living with. And so feasting puts in place a kind of regular, I mean, fasting rather, puts in place a a kind of regular restraint so that we learn to not love the kinds of things we want to consume in an inordinate manner or a lustful manner or a possessive manner. So feasting and fasting, I say, are like flip sides of the same coin because they're both geared to helping us understand that the world exists as gift. It's there to be enjoyed, but not to be presumed upon as something that is ours by right. I love that. And when we move into the Gospels in particular, when we're thinking about sacramental aspects of eating, uh, people tend to go straight towards the Eucharist. But before we even get to the Eucharist, Jesus uses all kinds of food analogies all throughout the Gospels. I mean, I keep wanting to develop a a course that would be eating through the Gospels or eating through the Bible. Oh, yeah. There's food all over the place. And he uses this food analogy uh, to talk about himself. I am the bread. I am living water. He talks about yeast in bread. He talks about fishing. What What is this showing? Like as Jesus is making all of these food analogies and talking about all this agriculture around us, what are we learning about Jesus in those moments? That's a that's a great observation. And I think one way to start is to to simply make a basic point that we don't reflect upon enough. And that is that eating is the means for the continuation of life, right? If we don't eat, we die. It's that simple. So how we eat and what we eat communicates a whole lot about what our understanding of life is. And if we understand God to be the God of life as the one who creates it, who sustains it, who heals it, who reconciles it, right? There's all these dimensions that we see in the ministries of Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised that eating is going to be one of the primary ways to understand God's involvement in the intimate spaces 
of our own embodiment, our own need for nurture, our own need for healing, our own need for hydration, our own need for physical pleasure, that God is in the middle, in, in, in the sort of the most intimate places of that kind of embodied visceral life. Yeah. And I, I just think it's so sad to see that we've got a number of people of faith who don't think that eating is of any sort of spiritual significance. And by saying spiritual significance, I don't mean some sort of ethereal significance. The sense that by eating, we actually come into some sort of contact with the divine power that has been creating and sustaining all of life from the beginning. I, sometimes people say to me that they, they feel that God is distant or God is absent. And, and one of the things I want to say is, well, have you thought about your food? Have you thought about how the land is one of the primary ways in the, the fertility of life, the fecundity of life, the, the, the nutritional character of the food we eat? That might not be one of God's primordial, enduring ways of saying, I love you. I care for you. I want you to be well fed. I want you to be able to do the things that you can do when you are well fed and hydrated. Mm -hmm. Right? That becomes a profound window into God's involvement with us daily, always, but then also God's care for us, God's concern for us, which of course is why then in scripture, when people don't have food to eat, as we see in the prophets, for instance, or as we see in the gospels, God's not happy about it. Because when people are deprived of the ability to eat, or when they're deprived of their access to land, they're actually prevented from experiencing God's presence in their lives. When you do talk about the Eucharist, I think the title of your chapter is Eucharist Table Manners. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that so much because we talk about the Eucharist in terms of this sacred altar space, but we don't always, it depends on which traditions we've grown up in, but we right. don't always talk about it in terms of the invitation to the table and actually having table manners when we're there. So what is it that you were hoping to convey to people by talking about table manners, especially when it has to do with the Eucharist? Well, I think a way to start is if, if you have a family with young kids and you eat together, and I know that's becoming a harder thing for some folks, but if you're doing that, one of the things that happens at a table is you're actually helping each other to become human. Right? This is something that happens in many, many cultures where you know, being around the table and having food presented to you at the table, you have to learn all kinds of things like, should you say thank you or should you not? Why would you? Well, that's something to educate young people about. You have to learn about sharing. Right? So if you're doing family style and someone brings a platter of, of a really good dessert and the first person it's given to going around the table puts every piece of dessert on their own plate and then hands an empty plate to the next person, you know, people will be horrified because you're supposed to share. You're supposed to be considerate. And at a table, all kinds of things are being taught to people about how they should behave as human beings. It's where we learn to be grateful. It's where we learn to be considerate. It's where we learn to be attentive, where we learn to listen, where we learn to communicate with each other in ways that give them space to speak and not just you yourself all the time. Right? So that's what I mean by table manners. It's not just, are you putting the fork in the right place and the 
knife in the right place. But how are you learning to be human? And of course, when you look at Christians, early Christians in particular, you go to the Acts community. These are people who are now empowered by the Spirit, and we're told that they ate together often in memory of Jesus. And they were glad, and they took care of each other's needs. In fact, they did such a good job, we're told there wasn't a needy person among them. Well, Hmm. clearly at that table, inspired by Jesus, eating real food, they learned something about sharing. They learned something about honoring the gifts of God. They learned something about taking care of each other, being considerate of each other. And those are the table manners that happen because Jesus was in the midst of their eating, right? So the Eucharistic table wasn't simply a ritualistic table. It began as a real table next to a kitchen where people were producing, preparing food. And and that kind of table manners is just a, a colloquial way of talking about how in the eating we do, we form each other as human beings. That's one of the primary practical ways that we do that. And when we do it in memory of Jesus, and different faith traditions talk about the words of the Eucharist, right? That becomes a way for us to invoke Jesus as the bread of life or Jesus as Mm. the cup of salvation, to use some of those kinds of formulaic words that help us understand that we ingest Jesus, we drink Jesus so that he can transform us from within to be the kinds of people that continue his ministries of healing and feeding and befriending that mark the the experience we have of him in the Gospels. Exactly like what you were saying, one of your other quotes that I underlined, because it's another very big, grandiose quote, as you say. I got to stop doing Jesus, that. <laughs> No, I love it. When Jesus is eaten, which is an odd concept in and of itself, sure. but within this idea of the Eucharist, when Jesus is eaten, people learn to give themselves away. Yeah. And I think that seems to come out of understanding the table manners of what the Eucharist is and what happens when we're joining together yeah. at the table, which yeah. is really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think about this to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation about the community that I grew up in. You know, these are farmers who had come to experience their agricultural lives as receiving gift after gift after gift. They understood that they had to work, right? So it wasn't a, a, a cheap gift or an easily understood one because they knew that in the midst of all this giving from the land and from animals and fellow creatures, there was a lot of pain, right? A lot of suffering, a lot of death, but they understood that there was gift at the heart of it. And so these became generous people, right? So one of the signs that people know that they're receiving a gift is that they obviously express words of gratitude, right? They say, thank you. Mm -hmm. But one of the ways that you know that the gift has really transformed you and not just registered in some vocal way, is that you yourself then become generous, right? That Mm -hmm. generosity means that you really understand that it's not just that you're receiving gifts, but that you need to now make yourself a gift for others. And so, yeah, I know that there are plenty of gardeners and farmers who are not generous, but I also know many of farmers and gardeners who are very generous. And it's it's not just with zucchini, right? Because it just grows like crazy. But it's it's with the realization that if you're constantly receiving through no benefit or, or glory to yourself, 
one of the things that you're going to want to do is that you're going to want to say, I have to share what has been shared with me. And so it's no accident that when people come to receive the elements at a Eucharistic table, they don't come with their hands in a grasping posture, but they come with open hands because with open hands, you can have the element placed in your hand, but with an open hand, you're also in a position to share what you've been given to somebody else. It it does definitely make me think of, and again, if we go back to actually working in the garden and the patience that it takes and the anticipation, right? Any of the times I've watched a plant grow yeah. and sometimes I, I'm like drumming my fingers together and I'm like, you can do it. Come yeah, on, yeah. I'm waiting for you. And then when all the tomatoes go red at the same time, it's so exciting. It's like the waiting yeah. makes the excitement of consuming and the taste of it that much sweeter. And yeah. it it does tend to lend towards wanting to bring everyone around so that they can all taste yeah. how amazing this food is, this gift is. And it's always, I mean, one of the things I think that also makes it so, so precious and so worthy of cherishing is that as you're growing those tomatoes, you also know that it's possible you won't get tomatoes. So last right. year, I don't know what happened, but I had a blight in my garden and I got almost no tomatoes. And it was so sad because we love using tomatoes in the summer to, you know, make bruschetta or to make salsa or spaghetti sauce or whatever. And and we, we couldn't do it. We ended up going to buy some because that's what you do yeah. now. But if I depended upon the garden as my sole source of food and realized that if I don't get tomatoes this year, I don't get to eat tomatoes this year. And that's a deep sadness. So when you do get tomatoes, it's a deep gladness because you don't take it for granted that you're going to have tomatoes every year. Have any of your own eating habits or lifestyle habits changed in these last years? Let's call it the last decade that you've been just really involved in teaching a theology and ecology mm -hmm. and I don't know, maybe it hasn't changed because you grew up with that respect for land, but is there anything else that's changed in your life just as you continue to think on these things? I don't know about practical changes are that many, but I would say that themes that I grew up with have just continued to grow in me. So for instance, I grew up with these people who in their farming really believed that the gifts of God were at work in their daily day lives. And they were generous people, and they were also very hospitable people. And so for me, what's become important is to try, and, and this is difficult, right? We live in a culture that that's not so keen on thinking about the world as gift and not so keen upon being generous or kind. It's, it's a different kind of world that we live in. And so trying to cultivate in, in our own family life here – this sense of, of gift, this sense of generosity, and this willingness to be hospitable with others in the sharing of really good food. I think that's been sort of the, the high points for us in our own family. We've had gardens for a very long time, and they've changed. In Kentucky, one of the, the great prides of our garden there was a big raspberry patch. Well, we mm -hmm. don't have a raspberry patch here. We tried, but it's just too hot. 
And so we've shifted to, to blueberries and blackberries. And one of our great joys as a family is to be able to share this with other people. And and I think that's something that we can do. I My life as a, a professor at Duke doesn't really allow me to be a serious farmer or even really a serious gardener. Yeah. But one of the things about COVID that has been uh, a blessing in the midst of all of its disruption and, and pain is that I've been home this spring. And so I could spend a lot more time with the garden. And, and that's been a really wonderful thing. Well, Dr. Wurzbud, thank you. I really do appreciate your work. Thank you for all the hours you've put into the work that you do um, and the thought and care that you bring towards helping people just see biblical text and biblical context in a, a different way. I think it's a good kind of corrective to the society that we have found mm. ourselves in. Yeah, in thank America. you. And thank you very much for your time today. It was a joy. You can't see me right now, but I've had a huge smile on my face through most of this conversation. <laughs> i tell you, you know, I, I have so much fun doing this kind of work. And uh, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's good to be doing it. So I'm, I'm glad that it's having some good effects for people. Be sure to subscribe, like, or follow this podcast so you do not miss the mini Advent series we're getting ready to go into. I love hearing from you. So if you have requests for new topics you want me to pursue in the new year or suggestions for how to improve this podcast, please reach out. And if you want updates about when I offer my next trips to Israel and potentially Turkey, we're still trying to wait out this whole global pandemic thing. You can sign up for my newsletter from my website at narrativeofplace.com. I want to give a special shout out to Brent Emery and Mindelin Young, who live on opposite ends of the country, but along with other Patreon members, help me cover the cost of editing, mixing, and producing these podcasts. I'm just so grateful for their help. And if you want to contribute in any way, you can join our team by clicking on the link in the show notes of this episode. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all of the music you hear. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe. Take care of all of those little small businesses that are struggling around you and stay curious about the world around you. Mm-hmm.